is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, looking this morning at verses 34 through 40 as we continue our series of studies in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the Pharisees heard that he, that is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, tested him, asked him a question rather, to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that as we study your word today, your spirit who has inspired it and preserved it will open our eyes Open our ears. Father, we pray that you would feed our souls on the word of God, the bread of life this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus remains in the temple area there in Jerusalem, the final week before his crucifixion, this Passover celebration taking place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, all of these events we've looked at, these dialogues, these discussions that we've seen over the last few weeks took place on Tuesday of that week. As Matthew presents uh, this encounter, he does so acknowledging the sinister intent that lay behind all of these questions that were put to Jesus. Mark, in his account, Uh, indicates the reply after Jesus answered his question about the greatest commandment uh, with a favorable response. It may be that the one that was put to put the question to Jesus uh, was perhaps not as hardened toward him in his attitude as, uh, as those who sent the man, who put the man forward to ask the question. But Matthew is showing here this opposition to Jesus that is reflected in these questions that are asked of Jesus, not so much for information, but asked rather to trap Jesus, asked to incriminate Jesus, asked to try to trip him up, to get him to lose the favor of the people who support him and follow him, asked to try to expose him, that they would have grounds to accuse him. And so as we look at the passage, again, it follows a familiar format. We've seen by now that familiar format of a question and answer. So I want us to look at it. First of all, the question they ask. Second, the answer that Jesus gives. And then third, just some observations about this 
exchange about what Jesus says. So first, let's look at the question that they ask in verses 34 through 36. We read that when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, now, they would not have been unduly upset about that. Uh, Again, the Pharisees and Sadducees differed greatly in their outlook. Uh, Some have characterized the Pharisees as the conservatives, the Sadducees as the liberals, and there is some merit to that, although you wouldn't want to press that too far. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, as we saw last week. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees not only had the entire Old Testament, but all their oral tradition that went along with it, and the Sadducees uh, uh, followed a truncated Bible. They believed and held only to the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, uh, and no other. And there were a lot of differences uh, as well, a lot of other differences. So the Pharisees, uh, who of course had started this out back earlier in the chapter in verse 15, where they sent some of their disciples to ask Jesus about paying taxes, Well, we read that when the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And it indicates, again, um, a plot, uh, planning. Again, the question that is put was put purposefully to Jesus, uh, as, as Matthew says here, asking a question to test him. And so they huddle up. They say, well, look, you know, he sent the Sadducees packing. So now we need to come up with another question to try to get him. Uh, And so they do, and they they gather together. In verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, different versions translate that word uh, different ways, a a lawyer, uh, which is a perfectly fine translation, but for us it has all kind of other associations since that's a word that we use of modern-day lawyers And they weren't exactly the same. Uh, An expert in the law in that day uh, was more a theologian, an expert in the Old Testament. Of course, in Israel, uh, there was not not the kind of line between the civil and the religious that we have. It was all more or less one and the same. And so an expert in the law, a lawyer as he's named here, is someone who was basically not only a civic leader but a theologian. Uh, a religious leader, expert as well. And so it's this, this man who comes to Jesus and asks him a question to test him. And so we have the question in verse 36. Teacher, again, very polite toward Jesus. They, they've all been outwardly respectful and polite toward Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, as with the question about taxes... As with the question about a resurrection, so it is with this question. This question reflects an ongoing intramural debate among the Jews as to which was the the greatest, which was the, the highest, which was the most important commandment in the whole law. Now, you may think, well, that what a, what a silly question. There, there are all God's commands. There are all God's laws. They're all important. Well, let's think about that. Imagine that you're a Jew living in the first century, and the rabbis tell you that there are 613 commandments in your Bible, the Old Testament. You can, you can, you can scarcely remember them all, let alone keep them all. 
So what are you going to do? Well, some prioritization is important. We need to figure out which ones are the really important ones, concentrate on those. So which, which are the greatest commandments? Which is the greatest commandment? Which one does God, is God most concerned about? Which one is most important? And we'll concentrate our efforts on those. Now, again, the attitude that some were, were more important than others uh, was common among the Jews. They had the, the heavier and the lighter, the weightier uh, and the less weighty. Uh, and even Jesus reflects that mentality because it's true. Some of the laws are more important than other laws. Uh, over in the next chapter, chapter 23, verse 23, where Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees, <clears throat> he says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says you've paid attention to laws you should have paid attention to that are important, but you've neglected the bigger picture, the more important matters of justice and mercy. And so even Jesus acknowledges some commandments are more important than others. And I think we would too, if we think about it. Surely the command prohibiting murder is a more important, weightier commandment than that that instructed Israel not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Some commandments do have greater import than others, although, yes, God gave them all, and they are all important, but some are weightier, some are more significant than others. And so that's why they ask this question. They probably are curious as to Jesus' opinion, but they're also hoping that if they can get him talking, that they might have some ground to accuse him, some ground to undo him. And so they're asking the question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So that's the question. Now, second, let's look at the answer that Jesus gave in verses 37 through 39. You'll notice, if you, especially if you've been following this series or familiar with this passage, that this is the first time Jesus gives an answer without rebuking the questioners, without challenging, challenging their attitude, challenging their purpose, or challenging their own motivation. It's also the first time Jesus gives a straight answer to the question. Uh, he just simply answers the question. They want his opinion, and he, he gives the answer that they asked. I mean, he did answer the other questions, but he answered it perhaps in ways they weren't expecting. Well, they ask Jesus for information here, and Jesus gives it. Teacher, what do you think is the great commandment in the law? Well, Jesus says, gives the first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. You want to answer? There's your answer. However, he goes on, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so let's look at Jesus' answer. First of all, the greatest commandment is the command to love God with all your being. And that's what he's saying here. Now, this would not have come as a shock. I mean, the Jews had put forth their own answers, and this, this was certainly uh, foremost among those answers, the answers they had to their own question. And it would have been familiar to every Jew because it followed the Shema, the great confessional statement of Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the first word in Hebrew is Shema, to hear, listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
It was a confession of the being of God. It was a confession that there was only one God. And immediately afterward, having stated that fact, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, follows verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. And that is so obviously following so closely along, every Jew would be familiar with that commandment. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The response, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength. And Jesus uh, quotes it here as all your mind, uh, indicating uh, obviously that mental component. Now, when Jesus is saying that, you want to you, you can divide it, these categories he lists, heart and soul and mind. You could say with all of your emotions, with all of your volition, the soul, your will, and with all of your intellect, with all of your mind and all of your thinking. But the point is really bigger than that. Jesus is saying you are to love the Lord your God with all of your being. That's the point. With the entirety of who you are is to be focused on loving God, on that devotion to God. And Jesus comes right out and says, this is the great and first commandment. But then he gives another commandment, which he says is like it. A second is like it. Um, Like it in what way? Well, like it in that it involves love, devotion, commitment to another. Although this time, instead of God, it's man. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second commandment. Jesus says the second is like it. It could also mean like it in terms of of being of utmost importance. And if it's second to the first, it's second only in the slightest degree. I think Jesus is basically saying there are two commandments that, that could be equally important, that could be considered the great commandment, although the second one does somewhat flow from the first, and so it's second to it. But they really go together, and you can't separate them. We'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. But look at what Jesus says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now he's quoting there from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Somewhat more obscure reference uh, in that it's not following immediately the great confessional statement of Israel buried there somewhere in the middle of Leviticus 19. But the Jews were familiar with that one too. It's not as though Jesus would quote that one and say, wow, we never heard that one before. They, They knew that one. They knew its importance. What is probably unusual here is Jesus taking the two of them, putting them together, and elevating them above all the others. But uh, Jesus' answer would not have, have shocked his, his hearers. Uh, they, they would probably have acknowledged that. In fact, many of them probably had considered those very commandments themselves. But they asked Jesus, and he tells them, uh, say they asked Jesus' opinion, And you could say that it's his opinion, but it's also the declaration of Almighty God who gave those commandments. Uh, It's the statement of the author, which is the greatest commandment. And as Jesus says, the second greatest commandment. So we could say his opinion uh, is itself authoritative and determines the reality, not just his opinion relative to other men's opinions, but His statement here is absolute. He is the one who gave these laws. He is the one who has the authority to say, this is the greatest commandment, and this is the second one, which is like it. 
Now, notice the standard. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, this isn't commanding self-love. It's acknowledging self-love. Um, we, we, we love ourselves. We do for ourselves. We take care of ourselves. You could compare that to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, where he's talking about wives and husbands. And Ephesians 5 Uh, verse 29, he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, arguing that husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. In other words, love your wife as you love yourself. Provide for yourself, take care of yourself, feed yourself. Well, you do that for your wife as well. And so when Jesus says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that's the standard that's given there. Now, in Luke, the question comes up, who is my neighbor? And that led to Jesus uh, telling the parable of the um, the Good Samaritan, whether that was at a separate occasion. This was no doubt a, a discussion that happened on other at other times. Who is my neighbor? In fact, at that point, his hearers gave this answer, the commandments. But they asked, well, who is my neighbor? Because he wants to justify himself. Uh, for the neighbor, for the Jews, a neighbor was a fellow Jew. But Jesus makes the point that your neighbor is another person uh, whom you may be in a position to assist, whom you might be in a position to help. So that's the neighbor, would just be anyone around you whom you might be able to serve or help, otherwise show love to, and you love that person as yourself. Now, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, but we can't leave this here as we look at how it applies to ourselves today, because something significant changed between when Jesus said this on Tuesday and what he said Thursday night when he was in the upper room with his disciples. Remember what he said to his disciples about loving one another. He said, you you are to love one another as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. He says, this is a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, that's not really new in and of itself, but Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so Jesus actually alters this. You know, the commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus basically adds a higher standard, to love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus demonstrates what it is to love in giving himself, not just giving his life, but indeed suffering the agonies of hell, the judgment of his Father, for the sake of his people. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So we can't leave the standard simply at loving someone as you love yourself because Jesus alters this. He adds to it. He he raises the bar for us, for Christians particularly, uh, two days later in the upper room. You shall love one another as I have loved you. Now, Jesus goes on to make a comment, verse 40, on these two commandments depend or, or literally hang all the law and the prophets. You could think of it like a hook, and the rest of the law hangs on it. It depends on it. It is supported by it. Or we could say it is, it is summarized by it. it. These two commandments encompass the entirety of the law, and they do. You know, the Ten Commandments is often cited as a summary of the law of God, the moral law of God. It is. But we divide the Ten Commandments into two tables of the law. The first table The first four commandments involve our 
relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy. They all have to do with our relationship to God. But the following six commandments, the second table of the law, have to do with our relationship to one another. You know, honoring our father and mother, you know, not, not killing, not stealing, not committing adultery, not coveting, so forth, not bearing false witness. They all have to do with the horizontal relationships we have with one another. These two commandments capture that. Our relationship to God, the first table of the law, our relationship to one another, our love for one another, the second table of the law. And so Jesus says the, the, the rest of the law and the keeping of the rest of the law also involves these two great commandments because the rest of the law involves our relationship to God in some way or it involves our relationship to one another. And fundamentally, you can't separate the two. The two are related to each other. And so that's, the, 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 in a sense, the rationale. You know, Jesus not only gives the answer, he explains why. Why these two commandments? He says, because on these two commandments depend all the law, and not only the law, but the prophets. In other words, the whole of Scripture uh, is related to these two commandments. So that's the answer that Jesus gave. To love God with all our being, love our neighbor as ourself, or as Jesus has loved us now, and then Jesus' rationale. But then let's make just a few observations before we close, kind of by way of application, to think about these a little more in depth. First of all, first observation I would make, these two commandments are spiritual in their roots. There's J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, who said you can't have the fruit of the flowers without the root. And what is the root of a life characterized by wholehearted devotion to God and loving our neighbor as ourself or as Jesus loved us? The root of that is a changed heart. This is not something ultimately that's humanly possible. Yes, you might have people who profess love to God. Yes, you might have people who practice altruism and their goodness and their benevolence toward other people. But the question here is the heart. A heart that is truly devoted to God for who he is and not what he might do for me. And a heart that truly is even sacrificially willing to meet the needs of others perhaps even receiving nothing back for myself. And so the root of this is a new heart, a heart changed by Christ, changed by the Holy Spirit, a regenerated heart that has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that has died with him and been raised to new life with him. We have to recognize that even this summary of the law, as Jesus gives it here, is not something that uh, if we just do it, then we'll be okay. But it rather springs from a transformed heart, a changed heart, a living heart that has been changed by God and has been changed by the gospel. They're spiritual in their roots. The second observation, these commandments are inseparable in their connection. You can't have one without the other. For example, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if we profess to love God, if we truly do love God, that will show itself in a love for other people, people who are brothers or sisters in Christ, and therefore we love them, are committed to their well-being, 
or people who are not a brother or sister in Christ and therefore need our love, need the gospel, need what we have to offer them. And so John's quite plain. How can you say, I love God whom you haven't seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, the person who's here, tangible, real, right there in front of you, you know, visible to you? So if we profess to love God, we must profess to love people. And the person who says he loves people but doesn't love God ultimately has no basis for that. And I would suggest if you explore far enough, you find that his love for people really is ultimately a way of serving himself or herself. And so we have to say that these two these commandments are inseparable in their connection. And that's why Jesus holds them together the way that he does. Third observation, these two commandments are tangible in their expression. Tangible. We use the word love a lot to the point where it almost is a meaningless word. Everything from I love my wife to I love cotton candy. You know, it's, it's, it's a very elastic verb. I do love my wife more than I love cotton candy. But what, you know, anybody can say, yeah, I love God. You know, I love, I love humanity. You know, you've heard the, the quip, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand. Uh, but, you know, it's very easy to say I love God. I love people. But what do the scriptures say? Well, they, they indicate that what Jesus is saying here is something very tangible. That is something that affects our lives in very real and practical ways. First of all, our love for God. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14. This, this is several verses, 15, 21, 23. Listen to what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So there in John 14, just in a space of a, a number of verses, Jesus indicates that the, 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 the outcome of a heart that loves God, that is devoted to God, is a desire to, to obey the commands of God. And will we do that perfectly? No. But it is, our, it is our heart's intent to do that and the set purpose of our will that we will know God's will and do it and live by it. And so a person who says, I love God, and yet has no regard for obedience to God's word is lying. Or they're mistaken about the nature of love. It's not just an emotional warmness toward God. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that outside of Christ, outside of a new heart by the Holy Spirit, the natural person ultimately is hostile toward God. We may say we love God, but we really don't. God is a threat to you because you want to be God. You want to be your God. You want to do what you want, the way you want, when you want, ultimately with no regard for God. Love for God, very tangible ways, particularly in the obedience to his commandments. How do we show God we love him? We keep his commands. Our love to our neighbor, love to man. Listen to this, again from 1 John chapter 3. John writes, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In other words, don't just leave love as a word. 
show it in practical and tangible and helpful ways. Now, this applies certainly to one another as brothers or sisters in Christ, but it also applies to those who are outside the family of God who may be in a position, uh, that we may be in a position to, to help them. To say, I love someone is, is fine, but if it's just words, it doesn't mean anything. The husband who says, I love you to his wife, and yet is, is unaffectionate toward her, spends no time with her, is not concerned for her, and you say he loves her. Or if we say, well, I love other people or I care about other people. Well, John says, don't, don't just love in word or talk. Don't just leave it there. But real love, the kind Jesus spoke of here, is love in deed and in truth. Fourth observation I would leave with you, and final one. These commandments are impossible. They are impossible in their demand. You and I have not kept these commandments. You and I are not keeping these commandments. You and I will never in this life perfectly keep these commandments. Even this morning, even today, even in this hour, you have failed to love God with the entirety of your being. So have I. If that were the only commandment we had, that were the only one you and I would stand condemned in and of ourselves because we haven't done it. And we can't in our fallen nature do it, and we certainly won't. And we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We certainly have not uh, loved our neighbor the way Jesus has loved us. These are impossible in their demands, and that's bad news because these are the two greatest commandments. If you want to prioritize and focus on these two alone, we're sunk. But the good news is that Jesus loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind. The good news is that Jesus has loved his neighbor as he loved himself. And the good news is that he did that for us. You know, the cross is where Jesus suffered the punishment for your failing to keep these two commandments and all that flow out from them. But his life, His obedience is where Jesus obeyed these commandments perfectly, not for his own record, but for yours and for everyone who will believe in him. That's why the gospel is good news. If the gospel is love God with all your being, love your neighbor as yourself, it's bad news. But the gospel means good news. The word itself means good news. And the gospel is good news. And the good news is that Jesus loved God for you. That Jesus loved his neighbor for you and for me. And that as the Father looks at us in Christ, what he sees is that perfect record of Jesus. A perfect record of perfect love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. But Lord, we know that even as Jesus has kept these for us, this is your calling on our lives. We pray for your forgiveness for how we have not loved you and how we have not loved our fellow man. But Father, we also pray that by the instruction of your word, by the empowering of your spirit, we would live lives that are characterized by this devotion to you and by willingness to serve others, to love others, even at cost to ourselves. 
and all to the glory of God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.